The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. And those of you who haven't been with us recently, just to set the context uh, that I noted a little earlier, the Apostle Paul had a wonderful ministry, being faithful to God and specific calling to the Lord Jesus Christ to be the Apostle. He wasn't one of the original 12 Apostles trained for three years by Jesus. He was a unique apostle, an apostle come lately, became an apostle five years after the church actually started, about five years. And Jesus personally commissioned him to be the apostle to the Gentile world. And that's what he did. He did it very faithfully. And so he went on three separate missionary journeys that we've already looked at and planted churches all over the place, raising up leadership, gaining new Christian friends, writing scripture here and there along the way, mostly later in his life, training up leaders, as I said, but also facing opposition everywhere he went. Vicious opposition, hostile, life-threatening opposition. And why? Because those people didn't like the message that he preached. That's all. It wasn't like he was a thief or stealing money from anybody or being a liar or deceiver or even by way of character an unseemly person. He was actually a very godly, conscientious, sensitive human being who walked in the Spirit and loved people. What was despised and opposed so much was his message. That's all. He just did one thing. He said, I preach Christ. That's what I do. I don't baptize. I don't start soup kitchens. I don't do social work. I'm not involved in politics. I do one thing. I preach Christ. That's very clear Galatians 6, 1 Corinthians 1. I preach Christ. What does that mean? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Wherever I go, I remind the humans that are there that they were made by one creator. His name is God. His name is Elohim. His name is Yahweh. He's been revealed himself and preserved in Scripture. God lets us know how it all began, where we came from, how we got into this mess, how why things are bad in the world. It's called sin, how sin came about, where it started with Adam and Eve, two real people and God's curse upon that sin, the reality of Satan, that that sin has transferred from every single person by birth ever since Adam and Eve, and every human being is a sinner, separated from God. God is holy. He is sinless. He must punish sin wherever it is, and he must punish sin with death. That's what he requires. That's the only thing that will satisfy him as a good, holy, perfect God. Death, punishment for sin. And that's bad news. And every human being is separated from their Creator in terms of a personal relationship because of their sin. And they can't save themselves. They can't uh, retrieve that relationship with God by doing good works or any effort of their own. It has to be, and it is, only by God's initiative. Bad news, we're separated from this creator by sin that all of us are infected with. The good news is God has taken the initiative because he loves his creation, humanity, that he provided the solution to bridge the gap of sin that separated us from God, the Creator, and that is He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who also is God, who is one with the Father for all eternity and eternity past. Jesus came down from heaven where He always existed. He never had a human body until He took on a human body willingly through Mary. And He lived Jesus, the God-man. He was God in a human body while He was on earth and lived a perfect life for 33 years. He never sinned. He always did the right thing. He was always obedient to the Father while on earth. He came purposely. He came for one reason. It was to die for sinners. He came for one reason, and that was to die on a cross and be punished, not just physically with nails, but 
the main punishment as Jesus was on the cross for six hours was the punishment he received from the Father who was up in heaven who was pouring out his full fury of wrath, infinite, almighty, supernatural, holy wrath on Jesus while Jesus was on the cross. That was an invisible transaction. We couldn't see it, but it was happening. It was a real one because God hates sin. And he was punishing Jesus for the sin of humanity. And Jesus could absorb it. He could handle it because he was God himself. And he was sinless. And he did, willingly. He was being the substitute for sinners. He died the death that you and I deserve to die. He absorbed the wrath that we deserve from God, our creator. And then he died and he was buried. And then he rose again three days later. He raised himself from the dead. That is amazing. He raised himself from the dead. God the Father raised him from the dead. The Spirit raised him from the dead. He raised himself from the dead to validate everything that he said was true. He was the Savior, the only Savior, and the purpose for which he died was accomplished. He died as a substitute for sinners. And he offered himself to be, from that point on, the Savior of anyone who would hear that message and come to him, acknowledge that they are sinful, and they can only be saved by Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did, his death on their behalf. That's the good news. That's the message that Paul preached. The message of the cross. The message of the cross. You were created by God. God loves his creation. You are a sinner. You're separated from God. You need to repent from your sin to get right with God the creator. And you can only do it through the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God himself in a body. And he died as a substitute, died on your behalf. And that's the only way to be saved. You can't save yourself. And he rose again from the dead. He reigns on high this day as the resurrected King of kings, the Lord Jesus does from heaven. And every human being that ever comes into this world is accountable to Jesus, that Savior. And at the end of the age, your last breath when you die, when we breathe our, breathe our last breath, instantaneously we will appear before the Lord Jesus Christ who is the judge. And he will judge us based on one thing. What do we believe about him as the Savior? And we will be consigned either to heaven or to hell for all eternity. That is the message of the Bible. That is the message that Paul preached. That is the message that saved many who heard, but that is the message that offended many who were incensed by it because of their human pride, because they didn't want to be told that they were sinful. They didn't want to be told that they couldn't save themselves. That's why they rejected it. And that's why Paul ended up in prison. So let's pick up Paul's sentence. He's a prisoner. He's a criminal perceived by these people. He's been through many trials. He's been subjected to a two-year prison sentence already. He hasn't received justice at all from anybody. And now he's going to be sent to Caesar of Rome, the basic capital of the world 2,000 years ago, that empire. Rome. Paul hadn't, apparently Paul hadn't been to Rome. He was a Roman citizen by, through apparently the family or the blood of his father. Even though he was Jewish, he was a Roman citizen. Not many people had that wonderful right and privilege in that day, but Paul did. Those who lived outside of Italy or Rome. So he was a full citizen of Rome, so he had unique rights and privileges. And one of those was that he could appeal to Caesar himself to have a trial to seek justice. Not many people had that right outside of that area. And so that's what Paul is pursuing. He said, I appeal to Rome. I want to see Caesar. I haven't had justice. Uh, you've already declared that I'm not guilty, that I'm actually innocent, and you still won't let me go. I appeal to Caesar. So they're sending him off to Caesar to have Caesar hear his case and deal with him. And so that's where we are in Acts chapter 27. I've put there in the benefit 
to walk through this narrative, these 26 verses, I made just four points to kind of hang our thoughts on. The title of the sermon I put there, Paul is shipped to Rome. Part one. It's not Paul sails to Rome. Paul's shipped because he's, he's really treated like cargo. He's on this ship of the Romans along with other prisoners. And that's how he's considered. Most of the people on this ship and in charge and in the authority of watching over, they don't know Paul. He's a, he's a, he's a criminal. He's cargo. He's in chains and he deserve, deserves to be so. And we will treat him accordingly. He's a nobody. He has no rights. That would be the general attitude towards criminals in that day. So Paul is shipped. He's perceived to be passive. He's not human. He has no rights. He's being shipped. That's how the story begins, but that isn't how the story ends. So let's go ahead and look at it. Four main points is we'll just walk through the text. Uh, by the way, we are in narrative passage now. This is a story. And a lot of times there are different kinds of Scripture when you come across them. There's narrative and then there's also Proverbs. Those are different. Or then when you go to the epistles, especially Paul's epistles and the latter part of his epistles, you, you run into all these, they're didactic. You usually have to go through it slower to understand it. And then there's all these commands do this, do this, do, don't do this, don't do this, don't, like if we went to Ephesians 4, got all these commands. So if I were preaching today in Ephesians 4, do not lie to one another. And that's all I was preaching on for 50 minutes. And then afterwards, hopefully you wouldn't come up and ask me, so pastor, uh, what's the application to the message today? Oh, you mean on the message that just said, do not lie to one another? You're asking me what the application is? The application is the imperative in the text. Do not lie to one another. That's the application. So when you have those kind of passages that have imperatives in Paul's epistles, it's easy to come up with the application. So a lot of times Christians want to know, well, what's the application of the sermon the preacher just preached? In other words, what do I do now? Preacher, give me the application. What's the application? So what? So now what do I do? What's the application? That's a very common question. It's a fair question, but this is just a reminder. When you come to a narrative passage like Acts, there are no imperatives for us to follow directly in the passage. It's just a story, but it's real history. But it's still, it's God's truth. It's the living word of God. All scripture is profitable. All scripture is profitable for us to help us grow, to make us complete and mature. So we need to be exposed to all of scripture. So when you preach a passage that's strictly story or narrative, answering the question, so how does this apply to us? What's the application there are many. And Jesus said, know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's an application. Know the truth. and In other words, as I go along, try to understand it. Listen carefully. Listen attentively. Try to understand it. And if you do, and you're a Christian, the Spirit of God will be working in your heart and in how you think and will enlighten you because you'll learn truth. And Jesus promised, if you learn truth, then the truth will set you free. So if you learn something today from Acts 27... And you're a Christian. The promise from Jesus is that somehow you're going to be liberated and set free. And primarily it's in your thought life, in your thinking. That's what primarily the main application of any passage in the Bible is helpful for us is that when we truly learn something from Scripture, we know we come to know truth. And the promise of Jesus is fulfilled. Know the truth and the truth will set you free. In other words, Scripture is always a corrective to our messed up, fallen, finite 
twisted, self-centered thinking. When you learn a truth of Scripture, you learn truth, and the truth will set you free. There is no greater application than that. So we are being reprogrammed in our thinking, whether it's narrative or any other kind of Scripture. You don't need an imperative there to have a supernatural, long-lasting effect in your life in a practical way if you learned something from Scripture. So keep that in mind as we go through this passage. You're going to walk away, hopefully, with new information. You're exposed to the living Word of God that will continue to be working on your heart, your mind, your conscience, with the Spirit of God Himself, and probably bring some of these truths to your remembrance by which you will be prompted to take a behavior, model something, think in a certain way. Oh, I need to be like Paul. Oh, you know what? I shouldn't be a whiner because I've never been subjected to what Paul was subjected to. And look at what the godly example he was. That's application. And it's primarily the Holy Spirit that's helping us with application in the Word of God. That is not the preacher's job. I can't do it. I'm just supposed to dispense the truth. And then the Holy Spirit says, if you know it, He will set you free and help you apply it. So let's go ahead. With that, very important, let's go ahead and look at this passage as we move rather quickly about the rate of which Paul's ship was sailing. A couple of pauses along the way. So Paul's ship to Rome, uh, God is completely... One thing we will learn throughout this whole... By the way, this story begins at verse 1 in chapter 27. It actually doesn't conclude the sailing story until Acts chapter 28, verse 13. So this story about Paul on the ship sailing from Caesarea all the way over 2,000 miles to Rome goes on for 57 verses. This is the longest account of one topic in the entire 28 chapters of Acts. This is amazing. Why did Luke stick that in there? Why did the Holy Spirit prompt Luke to put it in here? Well, because God wanted us to know it. (laughs) That's why. So in this, we're going to see all of chapter 27 is Paul's journey from Caesarea to Rome. Uh, Along the way, there's terrible weather. Along the way, they go over 2,000 miles to get there from Caesarea to Rome. Uh, 57 verses, like I said. The entire time that elapses is about a four-month period. Three of those months, they're not sailing at all. They're kind of stranded on an island, actually. They go through three different ships to get there. Should have taken two ships. One of them is destroyed, and they've got to get another one. For most of the journey, Paul's on ship with 276 people. That's a big ship 2,000 years ago. This is not the first time Paul's been on a ship, keeping in mind in terms of his three missionary journeys. And the fact that he grew up in Tarsus, which is up uh, southern Turkey, literally on the border, I mean right on the coast by the Mediterranean Sea, could very well be that Paul growing up was exposed to the Mediterranean Sea. He knew the area. He knew the weather seasons and the systems and the wind systems and circuits very possibly. But even if he didn't grow up on the sea uh, in a practical way living in Tarsus, he has been an experienced seafarer the entire time of his ministry prior to this Voyage. We know that he's probably been on 11 different sea voyages just with respect to his ministry before this. 11 times on the Mediterranean. Sometimes going all the way from Jerusalem all the way across the Mediterranean. 11 times. Traveling over 3,500 miles on those 11 voyages. We know that from 2 Corinthians he said that he was shipwrecked three times in his apostolic ministry. Three times. My point is, of all the 276 people that we're going to see on the second ship, 
I don't think anybody has more experience seafaring and on the Mediterranean Sea than Paul himself. And the interesting thing is nobody knows that when they all get on board. Nobody knows that when they're confronted by the storms. Nobody knows that when they all lose hope as they know the ship is going down. And that's when God, who knows everything, takes over and uses his wonderful, faithful servant, a leader like no other, the Apostle Paul. So let's go ahead and look at it. First is the preparation of this trip, verses 1 and 2, starting at verse 1. So when it was decided by Herod Agrippa II, told Festus the governor, you know what? I heard Paul's case. He's legit. He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't violate Jewish law. And as far as I can tell, he didn't violate Roman law. He should be let go. He should be released, but he did formally appeal to Caesar, so we got to send him that way. So that's what needs to be done. So that's what Herod Agrippa said, and Festus already told Paul, okay, you appeal to Caesar. To Caesar, you shall go. So that was the plan. And so it was decided by the leadership who had jurisdiction over Paul that he would be sent to Rome. So when it was decided that we should sail for Italy to Rome, we here, this is Luke talking again. Sometimes Luke says we, and sometimes he doesn't in Acts. There's like four we sections at the end of the book of Acts. And whenever he's writing we, it's when Luke is actually with Paul in that city, at that church, during that event. And so Luke is here. Luke was probably hanging out in Caesarea when Paul was on trial in Caesarea. Could be Luke was one of the ones that came to visit Paul when he was in jail for two years in Caesarea. And here we know for sure that Luke is with... It had been decreed, okay, Paul, you're going to Rome. And apparently those who were involved... Uh, the Roman centurion allowed, or maybe Festus, allowed Paul to have his two friends with him, Luke, Dr. Luke, and also Aristarchus, another follower of the Apostle Paul, disciple of Paul. So when it was decided that uh, Paul primarily should go to Rome to appear before Caesar, Luke was allowed to go, so was Aristarchus. We would sail for Italy. They proceeded to deliver Paul, so they formally delivered him over in terms of being in custody. And some other prisoners... So Paul is with some other prisoners put on the ship. So uh, whatever this ship is carrying, it's carrying cargo, but it's also carrying prisoners because ultimately its destination is going to be Rome. And it says that Paul and some other prisoners in verse 1. When it says other prisoners, the Greek word there is heteros, as in heterodox, as in something different, as in set apart, as in not the same in the Greek. In other words, Paul was a different kind of prisoner. It was Paul the prisoner, and then there were also other other kinds of prisoners, different prisoners, kind of like when Jesus was crucified with two criminals. It was There were three criminals, but Jesus was unlike those other two. They were totally different. Why? They were guilty. They were sinful. They were wicked. Jesus was a criminal. He was a prisoner, but he was different. He was faultless. He was sinless. He did nothing wrong. That's true of Paul here. Paul, the apostle who did nothing wrong, who's already been Pronounced innocent, not guilty several times, let alone being a servant of God, yet he's considered a prisoner. He's different than these other prisoners. These other prisoners on the ship are probably guilty as could be, corrupt as could be. And actually, fodder or to be put in the arena at Rome is probably what's going to happen because that was common. We need more people to be eaten by lions in the arena for entertainment. So that could be their fate. Paul who was not at fault, and these other criminals who probably deserved the sentence they were given. And so they were delivered, Paul and some other prisoners were delivered to a centurion. A centurion is a Roman soldier in charge of a 100 people. He was a man of authority. We've seen centurions. There was a centurion, Roman soldier, that Jesus interacted with in his ministry, who probably got saved 
and Jesus commended that centurion for his faith. Pagan, Roman, who got saved. Cornelius, the centurion we already saw in Acts chapter 10, who was at Caesarea, he was an Italian, Italiano. Uh, Cornelius. He was a centurion. He was in charge. He was a man of authority. He was a Roman soldier. He was entrusted. He worked his way through the ranks. He was highly respected. He was a man of integrity. He was a Roman. He was Italian. He wasn't born Jewish. Yet at some point he got exposed to the Jewish religion and embraced it. He read the Old Testament part of it and came to learn about this Yahweh. And he said, I want to know this Yahweh. And so he was called a God-fearer in Acts chapter 10. And that's who Peter met. And Peter gave him the fullness of the gospel. And he got saved. This was years before. So you have an influential Roman representative, centurion, highly respected, named Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, who becomes a leading figure probably in Caesarea and has Christian friends. And also he commiserates with other soldiers and military people. And he was an outspoken leader of a respected man, no doubt telling other people about Jesus. And so you probably had a contingent of people getting saved even within the military there at Caesarea. Ten plus years before Paul is put in this situation. Significant. Centurions. So they were like military captains, majors, generals. They were in the upper echelon of leadership. And it's amazing in the New Testament, we see them all over the place. There are many centurions, and usually they are men of integrity and character, even though some of them were not saved when we meet them. But to be a good, effective leader in the military, when other people's lives are on the line, you need a person of consistency, reliability, loyalty, integrity. So it makes sense. The Romans did do some things right. And the way they administrated, delegated in their military, there was a lot of good virtue there. And the way they chose centurions was one of those. And here's a perfect example. This centurion who was entrusted with Paul, his name is Justice. Justice. And let's look what it says about Justice. So Paul and the other prisoners were entrusted to a centurion of the Augustan order representing the Caesar in a covert. And his name was Julius. Julius may, maybe didn't know Paul personally, but maybe he had heard him by way of reputation. It doesn't matter. God worked on Julius's heart and prepared him. Verse 2, it says, in embarking in an Andromitian ship. Uh, Andromitian was a city, harbor city, way over by Troas up there in the north of Asia Minor. So that's where the, the ship is heading back home is the point. And so it's convenient to take it because it's on the way to Rome. Uh, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, Asia Minor. Uh, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a fellow friend of the Apostle Paul and disciple, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. So God has providentially prepared this whole situation. By the way, it was four years previous in the book of Acts. We saw it in Acts 19 for the first time where Paul expressed his desire. I think it was in the city of Ephesus. Where basically he was told he's, God is going to take, Jesus is going to take Paul to Rome. You're going to go to Rome? You aren't going to die here in Ephesus despite the mob. Despite the crowds yelling, off with his head. Paul, I will preserve you. I will protect you. And you're actually going to go off to Rome. And then from that time on, it became a burning desire for the Apostle Paul to go to Rome, the most important city in the world. And he just saw that 
if that could just be a hub of getting the gospel out like no other time in history would be awesome, the influence he could have there. So for four years, we see repeatedly Paul saying, I want to go to Rome. I want to go here, but also ultimately, I want to go to Rome. I want to go to Rome. He even writes the Romans in 55 AD and says, I'm coming to you. I want to go. I've been hindered and been prevented so many times, but my heart's desire is to be with you in Rome. So for four years, Paul had to wait. He never envisioned. I mean, he believed he was going to Rome, but he probably never envisioned it would be in chains as a prisoner, as cargo on his way. But that's how God providentially decided to send him there. You have a heart's desire to go to Rome. I will send you to Rome and you will you will be a prisoner for me. Uh, You'll be a servant and a slave of Jesus Christ, literally in chains when I send you there. So that's the preparation. God had been preparing Paul for four years to send him to Rome in God's perfect timing. God's timing is always perfect, isn't it? And our timing is usually not in correspondence with God's perfect timing. And we get frustrated and we get impatient. And then we have to pray, God, remind me about your perfect timing. But in hindsight, as a Christian, you can look back and say, you know what, God, you were right. Your timing was perfect. If I had done that when I wanted to do it, that would have been a disaster. God knows. And this is perfect time for Paul to go to Rome, and he had been prepared accordingly. So there's the preparation. Then there's the proclamation that Paul makes. First of the two statements that he makes, verses 3 to 10. Let's look at that. So the next day, uh, so they get in this boat, and they start sailing, and they're hugging the coast, going up north from Caesarea. You can look it on, follow along on your map. Verse 3, the next day they, they put in at Sidon so they didn't go too far. And they stopped there, and they're on the coast. And listen to this. Julius the centurion. Julius the Roman. Probably Julius the unbeliever. Julius the pagan. Julius the Gentile. Julius the man in charge. Julius, as far as we know, didn't know Paul very well. Julius treated Paul with consideration. That, that is amazing. That is the sovereignty of God, the providence of God. That was a work of God. There's no other way that could have happened. We don't know why Julius had favor towards Paul, but he did. That's God's grace and mercy when he favors us with people. So Julius treated Paul with consideration. That's amazing because Paul's a prisoner. Paul doesn't have any rights. There's other prisoners who probably didn't get the same treatment and consideration. And he allowed him to go to his friends there at the harbor inside and receive care. So there were believers there. They took care of Paul. And, and fed him and loved on him and prayed for him and refreshed his soul. This is the grace of God. Verse 4, And from there, then we put out to sea again on the boat and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. So the winds start acting up. By the way, the time of sailing here is probably October. We know this because of a reference that Luke makes in the story regarding the Day of Atonement, or the fast, he calls it. So we have an exact date of when this actually happened. And, and 2,000 years ago, we are pretty certain from history of when the times to... There were good times to sail and bad times to sail at that part in the Mediterranean Sea. And it just so happened this was the worst allowable time to sail in the Mediterranean Sea from September to November 11th. That time frame, that was the last opportunity you could sail, but it was the worst and most dangerous time, and that's when they are sailing. It's nearing November. It is the worst time to be out on the water in that part of the world. It, it's already a risk to do it, and they're taking that risk. After November 11th, it was pretty much against the law. You can't go out on the sea anymore until February. And you had to 
sit around and twiddle your thumbs wherever you were for the next three months. And that's exactly what happens in this story. So they set out to see the winds are contrary, which is consistent with the time of the year, verse 5. So it's uh, A.D. 59, October, when he had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia. We landed at Myra in Lycia, verse 6. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship. So finally uh, the centurion reached his goal. He couldn't find a ship that was going to go directly from a direct flight. Isn't that frustrating when you want to travel somewhere and you don't get a direct flight? You got to stop in Houston and then go backwards back to Nebraska. What's that all about? Just to get over down south to Florida? Anyway, well, that's what happened here. This was not a direct flight. We got a transfer. Do you ever have to take the bus, like transfer on three buses in high school to go to school like I did? Well, anyway, some of you did. And so that's what the centurion, that's what his problem was. Okay, when we get to this port, we'll find a, a ship that's going all the rest of the way to Rome. And that's exactly what he found the centurion. He was informed. He was a representative of Rome. He was the authority. He knew what was going on. He was in charge. Uh, they're going to get on another boat that's going to occupy 276 people. Uh, verse 6 says that the centurion found an Alexandrian ship. That's an Egyptian ship. It's a specific kind of ship. Later in verse 38, I think it tells us that it has wheat on it. So it's a wheat ship. Massive amounts of wheat are being, have been harvested from Egypt and they're going to be taken to Rome because that's where Rome got its wheat mostly was from, that was the granary for the empire of Rome was in Egypt, Alexandria, and that's what this ship is. It is massive. It can hold 276 plus people. Paul is going to be put on it. It's an Egyptian grain ship and that's where they are in verse 6. So they all board the ship and they're sailing for Italy. And he put us out to board. Verse 7, then... We had sailed slowly for a good many days. They're going along the coast and along uh, south of Asia Minor. And with difficulty, they had arrived at Snidus. And since the, with difficulty, so the winds are blowing, it is atrocious. They're going up and down. People are vomiting probably and getting sick. Uh, since the wind did not permit us to go any further, we sailed under the shelter of Crete. Off, so, so they just get to a point where they can't even go straight anymore. And they have to go directly north. And they do down to that island of Crete. That was not intentional. That's just, we, we got to do it. We can't even go forward anymore. Verse 8, with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place on the south of the island of Crete called Fair Hazens, near which was the city of Lycia, and when considerable time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous. Okay, so now it's just going from bad to worse. The prospects are gloomy. The winds are blowing. They are even life-threatening. Everybody knows it. They're not going the direction that they want to. They know they have an unmanageable problem on their hands. People are probably panicking, maybe some even freaking out, asking what's going on and talking to the captain and all the others, trying to get help, trying to figure out what their fate is. That's why verse 9 says, When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous. It was utterly dangerous since even the fast was already over. So the fast refers to the Day of Atonement. October 5, A.D. 59, we know exactly when it was. Luke is a, a historian of precision. And because it's the worst time of the year to sail, and the evidence was apparent and in front of them, Paul began to admonish them. He began to, so here's this prisoner who has no rights, no privileges whatsoever. Nobody even knows who he is. And then there's all these authorities on board. There's the centurion who actually has more authority than anybody on the board, on, on board. Uh, the centurion actually, by rule of Rome, had more authority than the guy who owned the ship and the captain. 
So he has authority. Then you've got the ship owner. Then you've got the captain himself and all of his assistants. And they have authority. They have to make the decisions collectively and in unity. And over all of that, Paul just speaks up on his own. And he admonishes. It's not uh, a passive, piddly uh, plea. It, it says he admonished them. He spoke strongly. He exhorted them with conviction and a warning. And now he's speaking not just as a man, but as a prophet of God, as the apostle. And they don't even know he is an apostle. He began to admonish them and he said, here's what he said, men. I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss. So he wasn't making a prophecy. He was saying, you know, if we continue as we are. There's going to be great damage and loss. Even the, the ship will be destroyed and people are going to die. If we, if we keep doing what you want to do, there's going to be destruction and death in our path. Clearly. I mean, I can't even imagine what it was like when they were on the ship. And they're scared. So now he has a captive audience. Somebody speaks up with some courage and not panic. With authority. And he probably got their attention. And plus, he's a prisoner. And they're like, whoa, who's this guy? And he's dogmatic. He is assertive. I perceive, he's, this is how it is. I perceive the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. He made a decree. Continue like this. We are going to die. That's the proclamation. Well, will they heed the proclamation? You know, a lot of times people blow off good advice just because of the vessel it came out of. Oh, he's not worthy. Oh, who is he? He's not one of us. He's not one of the elite. He's not one of the educated. He's not one of the esteemed. He didn't get his PhD there at that school. What does he know? So you don't even listen. You just shut it down. That's what they did. They shut him down. He speaks truth. They shut him down. So that's number three. The uh, Number three is the problem. When you disregard God's truth, you have problems. What is the problem here? The evidence of the problem is sin, that's pride. Because of the pride of the centurion, the captain and other seamen and those who were in charge, when they commiserated, listen to what Paul said, made a decision, their sheer pride, out of sheer pride and sin, they decided, you know what, we're not going to heed his advice, even though it was wise counsel. And also the fall, the fall is a result of the curse on nature. There is virtually a hurricane on sea, and that is a result of the curse in Genesis chapter 3, Romans chapter 8. God cursed the earth, and that's why you've got uh, the mix that you do of this this storm that threatens people's lives. So look at the problem, verse 11. But the centurion was more persuaded. There it is, but. That's a sad but. God said, but. But the centurion, who gave Paul favor, but not a whole lot of respect initially. The centurion was more persuaded by the pilot, the guy driving the thing. This is, uh, so you're a professional pilot. Of course, I'm going to listen to the pilot. And the captain, the guy who's supposed to know it all. Yet remember how much seafaring experience Paul had that they're probably not aware of? So the centurion listens to the pilot and the captain. Instead of Paul, the ship disregarded Paul. Verse 12, because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, where they stopped at Crete, the majority reached a decision. So they all said, okay, uh, let's make a decision. Should we stay here, because Paul said don't go, or should we move just a little down the coast at Phoenix and stay there, 40 miles or whatever it was? And they decided to blow Paul off. Well, you know what? We want to go down where it's, we think it's safer to Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing southwest, northwest. 
spend the winter there. That's where we'll go spend three months. And so when a moderate south wind came up, so then a calming wind came up, coincidentally, when they made the decision, oh, the weather, oh, it's beautiful. Hey, we were right, we can go now. Forget Paul staying here. We will go ahead and sail those extra 40 miles to Phoenix because the weather is just primo. No global warming here, we're good. So that's what they decided. So with a moderate wind came up, verse 13, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete, chosen or close in shore, verse 14. But before very long, all of a sudden, rushed down from the land, that's from the mountains of Crete, a violent wind, verse 14, a violent wind. How violent was the wind? The Greek word is tuphonikos, tuphonika, tuphonika, typhoon is where we get our English word. And it means a violent wind a typhoon hit and it even had a name the northeaster verse 15 and when the ship was caught in it in a typhoon hurricane on the water and could not we've faced hurricanes recently maybe it was a category five and they could not face the wind we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along so they were just it was hopeless now Verse 16, running under the shelter of a small island called Clara, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. They, they, one thing they try to do is bring the dinghy into the small little boat, the dinghy, and put it in it. Well, maybe that'll help. And it says we. So Luke was actually helping. So Luke and the prisoners, they're helping the sailors because it's getting so bad and everybody's life is on the line and everybody's got a chip in and everybody's in a panic except for Paul. And they take all these precautionary measures. One, bring the dinghy in. Another thing they do Verse 17, after they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables and they wrapped the ship with these massive cables or ropes so they wouldn't bust apart on the water. Hoping that would help and fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of the Sartus, they did a third precautionary measure in the middle of verse 17. They let down the sea anchor as a break to keep it from moving all over the place so that it wouldn't shatter. And in this way, they let themselves be driven along. That didn't work. Verse 18, the next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. That's precautionary measure number four. They just start throwing stuff overboard. That doesn't help. Verse 19, fifth precautionary measure, verse 19, on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. That, that's bad. You need the tackle. When you're throwing tackle overboard, you have given up hope. And that's exactly what verse 20 says. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. It is just black. It is dark for days. On top of that, this vicious, violent typhoon of a hurricane on the sea of the storm that they're caught in the middle of this. And they are utterly helpless. And that's why at the end of verse 20, it says, From then on, all hope of being saved was abandoned. That is probably one of the most important verses in this story. God brought them all to their knees in the face of death. And you know what? That's when God can have the greatest impact when he tells somebody something. You have no hope. There's no hope more in yourself, in your abilities, in your experience, in your education, on the sea, in your tools, in your tackle, in this massive ship, in your partner. All hope was gone. And... Death was imminent in their face. And that's exactly where God wanted them. It's amazing. God is in charge. The word saved there, that is going to be, that's going to come up several times at the end of the story. Saved. It's the same word for spiritual salvation, but this is literal being rescued. Salvation. Saved. Same word. They had zero hope. 
And then God's timing is perfect. When humanity has no hope, He brings the only thing that can bring hope, and that's the truth from Almighty God. Special revelation. Truth from heaven. And Paul is the vessel to bring that comforting, encouraging news. Even if it's not of a saving nature, but of a practical nature, this is the case here. Verse 21 and following, let's read it. The prophecy of protection. God intervenes. Why does God intervene? Why should God intervene? I thought Psalm said, Psalm 5 said that God hates sinners. He hates the wicked all the time. They deserve death. Why didn't he just snuff them out? Paul's going to heaven anyway. Luke's going to heaven. Aristarchus is going to heaven. And these 274 unbelievers, they're wicked. They, They deserve death anyway. The wages of sin is death. Why didn't God just snuff them out? Well, because God isn't like that. He's not only wrath. God is a God of love. God is love. God is gracious. God is merciful. God loves His creation. God is not willing that any should perish. God wants them to get the truth. God wants all people to hear the gospel truth. God wants to give them an opportunity. God is wooing them, wooing them with His love, wooing them with His spirit, wooing them with the saints' prayers. He cares about His people. He cares about their practical situations. He cares about their life. He cares about our lives the same way. Isn't that encouraging? It's the same God 2,000 years later. Everything going on in our life, God cares about it. And He operates and intervenes accordingly. So the prophecy of protection, God intervenes. So you don't, you don't always have, you don't always, to be blessed by God, you don't always have to spiritualize everything. This is not spiritual. This is practical. God loves them. He intervenes. He gives a prophecy to Paul to protect the people, to save their physical life, not their spiritual soul immediately. God even cares about the practical things in life. Don't hyper-spiritualize everything in your life. People, Christians can tend to do that. Yeah, we're having a get-together at my house uh, next Saturday. Oh, okay, what's the spiritual ideal you're going to achieve? Uh, I don't know. We were just going to sit around and uh, eat food and talk and have fun. Ooh, is that unspiritual? Ooh, I feel guilty all of a sudden. No. Good, wholesome interaction with one another on a practical level. That's a good thing. God says in Ecclesiastes to enjoy life. But anyway, that's a tangent. Go on, 21 and following as we close the story. God's prophecy of protection. This is just wonderful. So they have no hope. So when they had gone a long time without food, probably because they were not hungry. You're on an airplane. The pilot has decreed you're going down into the Hudson and there is no hope. You're not asking for a Snickers bar or peanuts from the waitress. You have no appetite. We are going to die. That's why they went a long time without food. There were plenty of food on the, on board. We know that later. Then at the perfect time, then Paul stood up in their midst. There he is again, Mr. Confident. You know how he stood up on this boat, getting flopped all over in the water. Stood in their midst as they're probably all huddled around one another, ready to die with no hope. And he says, men, you ought to have followed my advice. You should have listened to me. Now, he's not callously rubbing it in. He's being a prophet of God. You know what? I spoke for God. You did not listen. Are you ready to listen now? I think they are. You didn't listen to my advice. I told you not to sail from Crete, but you did. 
and you encourage this damages and loss. Just as I said, verse 22, yet now I urge you to keep up your courage. Two times he says, keep your courage. Be courageous. Well, why? Well, for there will be no loss of life among you. That is awesome. That is a prophecy from God Almighty. No one is going to die. There is a condition, though. If you try to escape, then you will die. Follow the rules. Do what I say. No one dies. There will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. The ship is going down. Verse 23. For this very night. How do you know that, Paul? For this very night, an angel of God, an angel of the God to whom I belong, came and stood before me. That is amazing. An angel came and stood before Paul, and apparently nobody else saw it right there on the ship. And this is the sixth vision, I think, that Paul has had in the book of Acts. Actually, more than that. Most of them are Jesus appearing to Paul. Here it is. An angel stood before Paul and gave him divine truth. To encourage, first to encourage Paul's heart. And it did. And give him confidence. Paul was not made of marble. He was frail and weak just like anybody else. But he was encouraged by this revelation from God. This angel who stood before him and I, by the way, these are the same angels that the Sadducees don't believe exist. I wonder if there's a Sadducee on board who was a prisoner or whatever. I mean, probably changed his theology. I believe in angels now. Before this very night, an angel of God stood before me. And here's what the angel said, verse 24. Do not be afraid, Paul. See, because Paul was human just like that. Paul was probably afraid. Don't be afraid. You must stand before Caesar. Jesus told you that. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. God has granted. You know what that means? God has granted. Very important phrase, verse 24. God has answered your prayer. Paul was praying for the literal physical salvation of everybody on board. Paul was praying for them. God, please save these people. Don't let any of them die. Don't let any of them drown. He doesn't even know most of these people. Some of them are criminals. All, almost all of them are unbelievers. They are pagans. They're Romans who oppress Israel. And he's praying for them. Paul loves people. He prayed specifically. God answered that prayer. And God is telling Paul, you know what? God heard your prayer. He's granted it. No one is going to die. Condition, verse 25. Therefore, keep up your courage, man. He goes, and he's encouraging the men again the second time. For I believe God. There it is. I believe God. Do you know God or do you know God and believe God as well as you walk through life? With every circumstance, every hard decision, every fear, every trial you face, I believe God in this moment of time. I believe God. He's going to get me through this hurdle, through this trial, through this hopeless situation. I believe God. That is the walk of a Christian life. That's what Paul did. I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island, and that will be fulfilled coming up. And that is the prophecy that Paul gives. The question is, are they going to respond positively or negatively this time? But we already saw that God was preparing their hearts, preparing the situation providentially so that they actually might embrace it. With that, we'll continue next week this exciting conclusion of this amazing true life historical ordeal where the faithful God intervened on behalf of sinners and saints to first meet their practical needs in a moment of trial and even beyond that even greater to meet their spiritual needs no doubt through the message of the gospel that the apostle Paul would bring to all of those people pray with me as we close father we thank you for our time together and this wonderful day to be with the saints, with your people. God, thank you for the reminders of the truths from Scripture, in, including history. Bring to our remembrance these amazing things 
God, that you did so faithfully, graciously as the Creator looking down from heaven on this earth as we are subjected to living on earth that's full of the curse and disasters, natural disasters, as well as rubbing shoulders with sinful people and being sinners ourselves. God, we need your ongoing practical intervention in our lives. Help us to trust you more and more. And we thank you for our time together. We commit it to you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.